Hi, ladies. I'm Janice Matthias Smith, and this week we're diving back into our psalm study after taking a bit of a break from it. As we do, let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of this time and space to sit with your word. I pray that you might open our eyes to see the things that you want us to see. Move our hearts towards the ways and truth that you want us to follow. Lord, help us to know you better through this sitting with your word, this psalm. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. It's not fair. I hear it all the time from my kids. It's not fair. That's not fair. And my answer to these statements is the same every time. You're right. It's not fair. But life's not fair, kiddo. I want them to understand this truth, that life actually isn't fair, that things aren't always equitable. We are grappling with this truth in deep and profound ways right now. This is an interesting psalm to sit with in the midst of the racial, political, and social climate we are in, when we are seeing the ways that life seems so unfair, perhaps in new ways for some of us, where good people seem to be suffering, where those who lie and abuse power and oppress seem to be doing fine and even advancing. The psalmist in our psalm this week was also grappling with these issues, but on a much more theological level. How come the people who are wicked, who don't live a life of pursuing and trying to please God, who oppress and cheat and lie to get ahead, how come they prosper and live on easy street, while the faithful, those who seek to follow God, encounter such hardship? The study guide for the week gives Psalm 73 the title, Hope When Life Seems Unfair. But beyond just this issue of fairness, I think this psalm speaks to times of extreme disorientation, when there is a collision between what we believe about God and the reality of our life as it is experienced. This psalm is about the way we move from this disorientation between what we believe and what is to a new orientation that brings hope. The psalmist begins with, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, this isn't just a naive statement of faith that the psalmist is starting off with, a recounting of things one should believe and recite but it is a statement spoken out of deep reflection. Asaph, the writer of this psalm, has wrestled with some deep questions, doubts, even despair. And he writes this psalm as a reflection of where he has arrived in the process of wrestling with God over issues of his life experience and his faith. As one commentator put it, It is as though the speaker is saying, come, I will show you how I learned to make this faith affirmation in a world of hurt, envy, and inequity. And don't we need that encouragement and guidance right now 
how we can learn to affirm God is good to those who seek and trust him in a world of pain and envy and inequity. And so with this opening verse, we are invited on a journey with the psalmist to the real places when life throws our faith into confusion and doubt, when our experience does not match what we believe, and when we feel utterly and completely disoriented. Before we do, I invite you to take a moment and name for yourself or to be thinking about your own places of disorientation right now. What has you feeling or thinking? It's not fair. Or what is going on here, God? Honesty is one of the principles we learn is necessary for the journey from disorientation to reorientation. After starting here at this affirmation of faith, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, which again is arrived at on the other side of doubt, struggle, and anguish, Asaph then shares how his disorientation came about. Speaking honestly, he confesses that the problem wasn't just out there, but in him. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious. There's the confession. I was envious. And the basis for this envy in the psalmist was the prosperity of the arrogant and wicked. Verses 4 through 12 go into detail about the rich, cynical, well-off people who reject God and yet who seem to enjoy the good life, who seem to thrive, never have troubles or hardships, and are always at ease. Or so he says. Clearly, the psalmist is exaggerating the experience of the wicked. No pains in life? Never in trouble? Always at ease? Really? No one, wicked or righteous, has that as their experience. But that is what envy does. It distorts your view of things. As our study guide pointed out on day two, it stated, Envy is is spiritual stigmatism. It skews vision. And this seems an important insight to hold onto in a place of disorientation. To ask yourself, What is skewing my vision? Where am I generalizing or exaggerating my experience or the experience of others so that I'm seeing it through the lens of always or never? These words that the psalmist says, always and never. And then ask yourself, is that a true reflection of how things really are? Here it was envy. Envy distorted the psalmist's view of himself. The psalmist's hands clearly weren't so clean or innocent as he states in verse 13, if he's struggling so much with envy, which is a sin. It distorts his view of others. They never have trouble or always prosper. Probably not. And it distorted his view of God. His experience was leading him to possibly conclude that either God was good to the wicked, which didn't make sense according to his faith teaching, or the reality of what he sees, the fact that the wicked prosper, makes his faith irrelevant. 
Verses 13 through 14 speak to the faith crisis the psalmist is having. Has he followed the rules, tried to live a good life, all for nothing? Does faith in God do any good if you believe but then find yourself constantly facing hardship while those who deny God even mock him? You can see verse 11 for that. Seem to have it all? Maybe keeping a clean heart is pointless. What good is it to be faithful to God? These are the questions Asaph is wrestling with. And he confesses in verse 16 that thinking about these things, trying to figure all of it out, it's giving him a splitting headache. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome or overwhelming task. It is in the next verse marked by the word until that the turning point happens. The psalmist has tried to figure it all out. Why do the wicked seem to enjoy the good life? Has following a life of faith been pointless? He feels his feet slipping. His faith is on the line. He no longer can determine up from down. Disorientation is at its peak. Until. Until what? What causes the shift to until? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Up until this point, the psalmist had been looking around at others, looking to the unfaithful people who seemed to be living what he considered the good life. And he was envious of it. And he'd been looking at his own life, the hardships and the struggles he faced. He was mired in and fixed on the very specific experiences in these details. But when entering the sanctuary of God, coming to God in worship, being reminded of who God is and God's truth and promises, it offered him another look. It expanded his view. It helped him see things from God's perspective and it freed the psalmist up from the evidence that was so close at hand that he was focusing on, the goodness of the life of the wicked and the hardship of the life of the one who is faithful. In encountering God, in contemplating God and his truth and worshiping him, he realizes two things. First, he discerned that the life of the wicked was not going to end so well. Their portion, their lot in life might seem great right now, but in the end, it is a slide into destruction. He recounts this in verses 18 through 20. I loved how one loose translation put it. Then I realized those who are materially rich are not as well off as they appear. Their bright bubble will burst someday and their dream will turn into a nightmare. And why is that? It's because those who are far from God, no matter how much they have, shall perish. Verse 27. Our God is a God of justice, friends, a God who promises to make all things right. No one will get away with anything contrary to the claims of God, despite what it seems like in the moment. Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be dealt with. Second, Asaph realized that goodness was not actually found in riches and material comfort and a life of ease, but rather in nearness to God. That is true goodness. 
At the heart of this psalm, Psalm 73, I think the main question Asaph is wrestling with is, what is goodness? What is goodness in life? He begins the psalm saying, truly or certainly or surely, God is good to Israel, to God's people, to those who are pure in heart, to those who believe. And after wrestling through his envy, his questions, his crisis of faith, he concludes in the last verse of the psalm, as if he's come to an aha moment. But as for me, this is what I've learned. This is what is true. It is good to be near the Lord. Goodness is not experienced in material wealth or comfort or a life without struggle. No, goodness is God's very self. And the one who believes in God, who seeks him, they are the ones who experience goodness because they experience God's presence. Asaph would affirm the beatitude in Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who trust and believe in God, for what? For they shall see God. And this is what the psalmist experiences at the end of the psalm. He sees God. He sees how God is with him, how God is near, how God is holding him, how God is guiding him, verses 23 through 24. His experience of God's presence makes him realize and exclaim in verse 25. And I'm reading from the message here. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. His encounter with God in his sanctuary, in worship and in contemplation of who God is, makes him realize that in the end, there is nothing on earth or even in heaven that is as desirable as God himself. Not wealth, ease, or comfort. There is no source of life and joy and goodness than God. And so he says in verse 28, which is our verse to color for the week, my flesh and my heart may fail, meaning my body may give out or the worst may happen, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion He longed after the portion, the lot of the wicked, their easy, comfortable, lavish life. And yet that portion leads them to slippery places. The best portion is not the portion of the wicked that has a slide into into destruction, but God himself. And just as a a little nerd here, there is a, a play on words where portion in verse 28 and slippery places in verse 18, they are from the same root word in Hebrew. So Yahweh as portion, chalak, is contrasted with the slippery place, the same room, root word, chalak, of the life of the wicked, which leads to ruin. The psalmist has been reminded that the best portion in life is life with God. Several things I'd like to reflect on here. What hooked the psalmist? What led him down that slippery path of disorientation? Well, for Asaph, it was material wealth, a life of ease. That is what he considered goodness. He, and he expected that those who were faithful to God would be materially rewarded. But what he experienced was that those who cared little for God and others who scoffed at God and climbed their way to the top through lying and cheating and violence, 
they were at ease and increased in riches. And because he saw material wealth and comfort as goodness, and goodness that the faithful should have, he became envious of it. And that is what set his vision askew. So let me ask you, what is it for you? What hooks you? What is your life is not fair because, or I am envious of, you fill in the blank. To come out of a place of disorientation, self-reflection is always needed. Asaph spends the time of doing this work of self-reflection. Verses 21 through 22 are just that. Really, this whole psalm is an act of self-reflection. But in verses 21 and 22, he says, Then I realized that my heart was bitter with envy, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. He gains perspective on his skewed vision and misguided assumptions about how life should work. He realizes his faulty theology and his skewed beliefs about God. He confesses this before God, even as he confesses his envy in verse 2 and his crisis of faith and doubt in verses 13 through 14. I love this psalm because in it, Asaph shows us the way of honesty and authenticity before God. He lays it all out there before God and invites us to do the same. So ask the Lord to help you name those places in your life where you have become hooked, those places of skewed vision that are leading to disorientation. After doing this self-reflection, Asaph then exclaims, Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. When I read that, that nevertheless filled me with such hope. Despite our distorted perceptions about life, others, ourselves, even God, God does not abandon us. He does not give up on us. He is continually with us, always and ever, even when we are foolish and ignorant. And he is guiding us through these places of disorientation. He is holding us in our confusion and doubt. So feel free to be honest with God about it. You don't have to hide what you're thinking or feeling. Asaph shows us the path from disorientation to reorientation is precisely through being honest with ourselves and with God. In closing, I want to share a rewriting of the end of Psalm 73 with you. I can get so depressed at times and I act like a stupid fool. It amazes me that even while engrossed in irrational and unspiritual contemplations, I'm never far from you, O Lord. You hold me close to yourself. You guide me and watch over me. You assure me that it is all worth it. And because of this glorious truth, I have no need for anything else. You can hear echoes of Psalm 23 here. It goes on to say, the essential desires of my being are met in you, O God. Just sit with that for a moment. The essential desires of my being are met in you, O God. What are the desires in your life that feel so essential? 
Ask the Lord to speak to you truth about these. Your desires are good and some even God-given. But only God can meet the essential desires of our heart. And so finishing up this rewrite of Psalm 73, listen. The essential desires of my being are met in you, O God. I might be victimized often by human failure, and I'll add, and even when life is not fair, my great God never ceases to love me and bless me. How good it is to know that God is always near. How does the nearness of God change your perspective? As you sit with this truth, How does the nearness of God fill you with hope and reorient you? Asaph came to realize that God's nearness was all that mattered. It was all that he needed. It really was the only true and lasting good in this life. This life of faith is worth it, friends. It is not in vain that we believe. God is closer to you than you realize. I pray that you may grow to experience the truth that the essential desires of your being are met in God alone and nothing else. So may we all say with Asaph, despite what our life holds, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Amen.